Today we're going to talk about music in the church, we're going to talk about dumb phones, we're going to talk about shame, and a lot in between, so stay tuned. As we begin every episode, we begin with a handshake. What is this? This is a manly virtue or practice that you can incorporate into your life. And today I want to talk about discipline, uh, specifically self-discipline. We all have habits, we all have flaws, we all have um, passions that are stirring within us all the time. And it's very important for a man to be self-controlled. St. Paul talks about this many times in his letters to the early church. He talks about the importance of subduing the flesh. And that can sound like a very scary thing. Um, but really what it just means is we have appetites. We have desires. And sometimes these aren't even sinful. They're just things that can get us into trouble. These are things like laziness, anger, impatience, uh, sloth, um, any number of different habits that we can fall into. You can be addicted to all kinds of things. You can have be addicted to coffee. I knew someone who was so addicted to coffee that they were shaking and sweating all day long. There are people who are addicted to shopping or to um, driving too fast or any number of bad habits. The point is there's as many different bad habits as there are individuals. There's many different passions. Mm -hmm and weaknesses that we all struggle with as there are personalities. But you, whatever your particular weakness is, it might be different than someone else, but know yourself and bring those passions under control. Begin to curb them. Be, begin to say yes and no to um, these instincts that happen um, and arise within you, and you will grow in self-control. Learn the power of no, even when it comes to yourself and your own cravings and your own desires and you will grow in self-discipline. So today's handshake is self-discipline. Begin practicing it, grow in it. It's a lifelong pursuit. Hey everyone, thanks again for joining us on another episode of The Catholic Gentleman. We are your hosts, Sam Guzman, John Heinen. We are blessed that you are here. We're also incredibly blessed to do this for The Catholic Gentleman. So if you have listened to us multiple times, if this is your first time um, and you are you enjoy it, we encourage you to look over at patreon.com slash Catholic Gentleman. It costs us quite a bit to do these um, episodes. We were figuring it out last year and it's in the tens of thousands of dollars. So um, we are dependent on our donors to, to make this happen. We're so grateful for anything that you can give from $5 a month to $10 a month. Uh, head over to patreon.com slash Catholic Gentleman to check that out. Today, as we kind of mentioned early, we are answering your questions. So we asked a bunch of questions, or we asked you for your questions, and we received such an amount of questions. In fact, some of the questions will probably turn into actual episodes. They were that good. But we have a lot of great questions that aren't gonna take 45 minutes to answer, and we wanna do that uh, today. So we've got a list of them um, here. Yes, and this is a lot of fun. We've already done an episode answering some of these, and it was it was really interesting, very enjoyable. So let's jump right in. Uh, one of the first questions comes from uh, Pavel. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's how you say uh, the name. Uh, looks like a good Polish name. Mm -hmm. But he says, what kind of music should a Catholic gentleman listen to uh, or perhaps even try to learn? That's awesome. And what kind of music should he avoid? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm sure Sam and I both have a lot of thoughts on this. So I am a professional musician. Uh, some people might already know that. It's not my day job, but I do um, play trumpet hours a day. And, uh, yes. and I have degrees in music and everything like that. Um, I think there is a great resource uh, um, uh, about um, the Mozart effect. Right. Mm -hmm. So the Mozart effect is a great resource and it just talks about how uh, kids um, had to listen to the music of Mozart or not before they did an IQ test for like toddlers, you know, three and four years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was done in, in California, some university in California. I think it was the University of San Francisco, California, but I'm not quite sure. And the point is, is that what they did is they took these three and four year olds and they 
had them listen to, or not listen to any music, take the IQ test, and then come back a month later, listen to Mozart, and then the control group didn't listen to anything, and instantly the Mozart group unanimously got better. Then they started doing piano lessons for these kids, and it was like a 15-minute piano lesson once a week and then like five minutes a day of just playing the piano. Mm -hmm. And a month later, it was huge results um, that that the young toddlers were getting really smart and really fast because they were listening and, and involving themselves in producing good music. So it is important, I guess, is the point of mentioning that, is that it's incredibly important. There's also a fun little study that I like to share that was, I believe, the 2007 or 2005, the, the Siemens Science Award uh, won that year, was what does the effect of music have on our brains? Or on, And what they did, this individual, is they got 30 weaned mice, and they had them in three separate rooms. And one room, they had to listen to heavy metal all day long. Another room, they listened to the music of Mozart and Bach. And then another room was just silent. So they had them run a maze. The maze took about 10 minutes. They did it in seconds, but it was about 10 minutes, all the mice, all 30 mice to run the maze. Then they put them in these rooms for seven days. And then they had them run the maze again. And the silent group ran it about 30 seconds faster. The numbers are not quite exactly right, but the, sci- the, the um, control group ran it about 30 seconds faster as the second time they ran it. The Mozart group, uh, likewise, only about 30 seconds faster. And actually, the heavy metal group on the first one ran it like 45 seconds faster, which is really odd. And, <laughs> they're all amped uh, up. Yeah, they're all amped <laughs> up. Exactly. Finally, they get to experience. So... He did it another seven days. And the control group basically plateaued out. They could run it about nine and a half minutes. The Mozart group was able to run it in eight and a half minutes after listening for two weeks. And the heavy metal group, it took 13 minutes after two weeks. Wow. He did it a whole nother week. Control group, same. Mozart group was like, under eight minutes it was like seven and a half minutes. We were making um, brain from Pinky and the Brain, and <laughs> um, and then the heavy metal group. Uh, it was like seventeen minutes or something like that after listening to heavy metal for three weeks. Wow. Now, another final detail of this research study was he tried running it the first time, but the heavy metal group within a week started to kill each other. So he had to get 10 separate cages so that they could not attack each wow. other in that. Again, music is so important by the way God made us. But you say we're not mice. But mice have a very similar neural pathway as, as humans do. And there is a lot of um, similarities. And They've so, done this with plants, too, where like yeah. you blast heavy metal in a plant and it's dead within like two days. And then you, you play classical music for a plant and it's like exploding and with life. That's I, right. It's fascinating. It is. And so to answer your question, though, what type of music should men listen to? Gregorian chant. And just stick with it. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, but I mean, Gregorian chant is wonderful. But um, I would say good music, right? Now, it takes time to appreciate good music. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this is really important. Do not expect yourself to turn on Mozart and uh, 40th Symphony and just be able to sit there for 25 minutes and listen to the whole thing. Or, you know, have mercy, Bruckner's, you know, two-hour-long symphony or Wagner's four-hour opera or something like that. You have to you have to build up to any sort of appreciation. And music's the same, especially when we've been conditioned to listen to the exact same four chord structure on every single pop music um, in every single movie, Disney movie, for the last 20 years. So that being said, though, I would encourage you to start there. Um, Aaron Copeland wrote a book, How to Appreciate Good Music. Uh, there is, you can just Google it, you know, music that kids will enjoy, like classical music that kids will enjoy. And don't, don't be prideful. 
you'll enjoy it too, right? And then I encourage you to take a listen to like Strauss's tone poems. So Richard Strauss would actually take stories and he would put music to it. And so there is um, um, uh, Till Eulenspiegel as one, there's Ein Heldenleben, and these, there's Don Quixote, you know, and if you know the story of Don Quixote, he actually put it into uh, music. And so I would encourage you to, to start in those places and praise God for Google, just Google it, you know, music the kids would or music that's, you know, from poems or things like that. And that's going to help you start appreciating it. Another thing that I like to tell is when you're learning music or when you're learning to appreciate music is as you're listening to a melody, try and complete the melody in your head. That can be a fun way to, to, to start creating while listening yeah. and, and we can kind of become a both and, you know, mm. um, when it comes to producing your own music, then I'll pass over to Sam. Obviously I could talk for hours on this, so, um, I'll, I'll control myself when it comes to producing music, honestly, whatever instrument sounds fun to you. Yeah. And I I am a professional trumpet player. I play, um, piano. I took jazz piano lessons for years. I play uh, the harmonica. I love the harmonica. I just find something so fun, so Western, so American about it, yeah. you know, uh, uh, that I like. And again, maybe it's guitar for you. I took uh, a couple years of classical guitar and, um, and I enjoyed it. Um, so really uh, diving in, I know Sam's a musician as well. And so, you know, diving into really whatever interests you, it doesn't have to be the nicest instrument. In fact, if you're interested in getting involved in an instrument, shoot me an email info at catholicgentleman.com. Let me know what instrument you're interested in. I'll let you know where to go, what to avoid, et cetera. So yeah. those are my, my two cents for, for music. Yeah. And yeah, be be content to be an amateur. I mean, there's all kinds of people out there in human history, long before the kind of performance media consumption culture took over, that just played instruments. They play the play the fiddle, or you know, like you said, play the harmonica, or doesn't have to be anything uh, overly difficult. Just just fiddle around with something and uh, have fun with it. You know, and it's, it's we have incredible ability as human beings to create. But there's a couple things I want to say there. Uh, first about what music to avoid. Mm. Like John said, there's a hierarchy That's of right. musical quality. Be aware of that. Not all music is created equal. That's right. Second, some music is just plain junk food. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean you should never listen to it. Um, we all eat ice cream now and then. That should that be your entire diet? No, unless you want to be a diabetic and be mm -hmm. dead by the time you're 35. You know, <laughs> you need to have balance in okay. your diet. You need to have healthy be the majority of your diet. Okay, does that mean you should never listen to pop music? You should never listen to, you know, a, a rock band that you enjoy or something. Does that mean that you can only listen to music written before 1850 or something? No, absolutely not. But Let's say that all you've ever listened to is, I don't know, Coldplay or something. Yeah. All right, let's expand your horizons a little <laughs> bit. Expose yourself to some of the music that John's talking about. Push yourself into uncomfortable territory. Even if you're not familiar with it, you don't know all the terminology, you don't know all the composer names, it's a little overwhelming. Yeah. Just see if your city has a classical station. Turn it on and just listen to it Great for point. a few minutes a day or... You know, get on YouTube and look up, you know, great classical music and you'll find some amazing performances. Stuff that'll bring you to tears sometimes. Just expose yourself to new stuff. But on the other hand, like I said, it's okay to listen to junk music sometimes. Yeah. Now, I do have a rule about, uh, personally, yeah. um, that I use to filter music and that's, can you pray while you're listening to it? Mm. To me, that's a good test because there's some music that just stirs up all the stuff in you that is antithetical to any kind of openness to God. Yeah. They probably shouldn't be listening to that. Now, if you can pray with an open heart and still listen to that music, go for it. Yeah. That's that's kind of my personal rule. It doesn't have to be yours, but it's just just something that I've thought about. I like that. Um, so, at any rate, those are those are a few things that come to mind for me uh, as we 
talk about this because I don't think there's one right rule for everyone. Yeah. I think it's something we have to kind of discern and work out for ourselves. But um, I think they're, they're recognizing the music does have an effect on you. It's not neutral. Correct. It's like food, you know, right. what you take in is going to have an effect on you. Mm-hmm. Um, so be aware of that. And what is that effect? And and um, just kind of use all those gifts of discernment that we should be developing in the men. That's right. Uh, is custody of the senses to a degree is yeah. exactly what you're saying. Is and, and indeed, there is some music there that is intentionally demonic. And yeah. and you you know what that is. Like you don't need us. There is some music. I like your uh, litmus test, right, uh, of praying because there's some music that's just filled with foul language. And again, we don't want to fill our hearts and our minds with that. You know, what we take in is what we become, right? Yeah. It's hard to um, it's hard to uh, turn that off, right? Or compartmentalize your music, right? We're not, we are um, uh, body, mind, um, soul beings. Mm. And so all of this is important. I just will add that some of the music is... Uh, of a higher degree because it's more ordered Mm -hmm. and God's creation is ordered. And so that music, which is ordered from Brahms to Ravel's, you know, pictures at an exhibition to, you know, Mozart in many cases. And actually there's stories of agnostic uh, or atheist individuals in China, uh, conservatories converting to Christianity, believing in some sort of God because they've studied the music of Mozart and it, it, his golden mean, the fact that it's, it's, I can't remember, 62% or something like that, um, the climax of the, of, the, um, of the piece happens at nearly the exact same time in all of his symphonies, when, from when he was eight years old and wrote his first symphony until he passed away. It's just like, this has to be something from a higher power, something transcendental is going on here. And so it does have an effect on you. It's a great question. Um, maybe we'll do an episode about yeah, that. Yeah, we should do enough. an episode on music. There's more to say there. Agreed. Um, so here's another question from Chris. All right. So Chris asks us, this is a good one, when does mistrusting your bishop become schismatic? I could say sinful even, you know. Um, I, I tend to automatically ignore anything that comes out from the USCCB. But I do recognize my bishop as the rightful bishop and obeying him. So, you know, or is that a lack of trust an issue? Is that lack of trust an issue is what he's saying. So I think we get the question. But Yeah, that's, a, that's a, um, an interesting question. I would say that this is on a lot of people's minds lately. Hmm. And it's something that we all need to discern for ourselves. But I would say the church um, has authority given to it by God. And just like the government has authority given to it by God. And it's interesting how St. Paul, the church was just beginning when he was writing. He doesn't talk a lot about church hierarchy and things like that. He does talk about it, but it's not the church was so much less developed than it is 2,000 years later. But he does talk about the government and he talks about how we should show a certain respect and obedience to the government and the laws that are put in place there because God has ordained those leaders and given them the authority that they have. Now, that's a controversial statement. The government at St. Paul's time, remember, was Roman emperor who wasn't always just Mm -hmm. and he wasn't always holy and he wasn't always someone worthy of respect. And you have St. Paul still saying obey the government that God has put in place, which is kind of a hard saying. Yeah. How much more then should we be respectful of the church government that God has entrusted us with? Now, that's not to say that we have to do everything they say mm-hmm. um, or that we have to just shut off our brain or our, our faculties of discernment. Listen to what they say and say, is this in accordance with the tradition of the church as it's been handed down through the centuries, or is this, is there something off here? But to the extent that what they're saying is not wrong, we should listen to it. Um, an example of this would be sometimes you'll have a bishop say one thing 
that's perfectly great. Yeah. And it's perfectly in alignment with church teaching through the centuries. Yeah. Great, wonderful. By all means, listen to him then. Then he'll, let's say this bishop has kind of imbibed some woke principles yeah. or something, yeah. you know, and, and wants to just go along with the cultural zeitgeist or whatever. And he puts out some statement to that effect. Okay, we're 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 not mindless. Okay, we can we can use our faculty of discernment and say this is has nothing to do with Catholic teaching. This is a talking point from some uh, secular organization. I don't have to. I don't have. I don't have a moral obligation to submit to something that is completely irrelevant yeah. to the faith. So. To the extent that we can, though, I do think we should listen and we should pay attention and we should strive to show respect and honor to our leaders, whether or not they're necessarily worthy of it. Yeah. Um, but then if they say something that's completely contrary to the faith or outside of the boundaries of the faith, we don't have a moral obligation to submit to that. I completely agree with you, Sam. And I want to offer one bit of advice or caution to our listeners, and that is be careful about speaking negatively about your bishop to um, in the public sphere or to even a lot of people, right? First off, it's not very gentlemanly uh, to just start talking badly about other people or voicing your opinion of other people, especially if they're not asking and you know, it just seems it's pride and arrogance that's, that's voicing that. So I want to caution that, uh, especially for the reason that Sam was mentioning, that they were um, ordained, and, and we respect that authority. At the same time, I'm just going to reaffirm what Sam was saying about uh, f- faith and reason. God made us rational individuals, and we know when things don't quite sound right, right? When things are a little off or maybe peppered, right? There's some really good speakers on YouTube. Uh, there's some really good um, priests that that have a certain, you know, rhetorical or rhetor, you know, orator ability, but they have adopted some of these woke ideologies. And so you'll get 80% that's that's really orthodox and really beautiful. And then you'll get just a little bit that's not quite right but use your reason right god gave that to you and we are accountable for ourselves right especially as laymen we're not accountable for for bishops and cardinals and and popes you know we're account we have to take care of ourselves and our family you know and love our neighbors and that's what we're called to do so i want to just add that little bit of um of thought to this to this situation because I find myself many times, as I'm sure Sam does as well, just shocked at some of the things that people in the church hierarchy state or come out with. And they're trying to be trendy and with it. And we spoke on a previous episode, a question and answer episode of how the church can never compete against the world. It doesn't need to, but when it tries to, it just looks pathetic. Right. And you get that from the pulpit as well as, you know, the liturgy and music and everything in between. So Yes, exactly. Uh, great question. So, okay, um, another question from Tyler. All right. So how do you integrate your spiritual life with your wife's? Um, of course, he says that we all have our own individual relationship with Christ. Um, but how do you spend time with your wife in a spiritual way? Um, how do you integrate your spiritual growth and development with that of your spouse? And I think that's a great question because um, we are not alone in our marriages. We're called to be one as much as possible. And that includes the spiritual dimension of each of us. So I'll just, you know, share um, some of the things that my wife and I do. Mm. It's not a universal prescription, um, but it is something that we do. And that is we do pray together. Um, Sometimes that's um, a prayer like the Rosary or Divine Mercy Chaplet. Sometimes we do, um, which can be a beautiful prayer. Um, we also pray together as a family and my wife and I lead that. I think it's important for children to see a mother and father united in some of these efforts. 
We also read books together. This isn't something for everybody, but it is something that we do where we'll pick a spiritual book, we'll read it out loud, yeah, and then we'll talk about it. You know, I'm usually the one reading, but then we'll talk right. about it. Um, and there's just little practices like that, or we'll say, let's all go to confession together as a family. Again, just kind of showing that union of mother and father in leading the family. Um, but it also brings us closer together. And then third, just talk about it. Like, just talk about what's going on in your spiritual life. Mm-hmm. Honey, I'm really struggling with this, you know, or, um, you know, here's a, here's a, you know, my wife sometimes she'll say, what, what, have you ever thought about this? Or like, she'll ask some provoking question and then it'll lead to a great conversation. We'll talk for 45 minutes or an hour or something about something spiritual, spiritually related. And we're growing together and in intimacy as we're talking about these, these, these issues. Um, but we're also growing together in knowledge. Sometimes she'll say something that triggers an insight that I, that I never thought of before. Um, or vice versa. Maybe she'll, I'll add something to her uh, spiritual knowledge that she hadn't thought of before. And we like build each other up in that way. Um, so I think those are just a few things that, that we do. As a I agree. Couple. And so I'd like to add respecting your wife's um, charism or respecting your wife's and I'm not talking about liturgical charisms or, or things like that, but I'm talking about um, maybe, maybe for instance, you love Lexio Divina, but she doesn't. It doesn't resonate right, with her. Yes. You love the Liturgy of the Hours, and she loves the Rosary and the Chaplet, or she yes. really. Um, in in my case, I'm I'm very humble, uh, humble to admit that when I got married to my wife, she was spiritually speaking her conversations with Christ, et cetera, were, were above mine, more profound, more, you know, she had, was more experienced and more in love with Christ. And so that was hard for me because I was attempting to control as men do, but this was something we had to really work through. And I really liked what you said, Sam, about speaking about things, right? So if you're struggling with stuff, if your wife's struggling with stuff, it's really important to bring it to the light, right? And not um, and not push it you yes. know, down or, or ignore it. And, and you grow together in that. I'm also really big that when we're struggling, we turn to prayer. So we talk through it, right? Again, we have to talk through these things. Don't just immediately say, okay, well, God's going to solve this. Let's turn to prayer. Um, but make sure that you end these disagreements or these difficulties by uniting your thoughts and your struggles and your worries and your concerns to God, to Christ, through Our Lady, these sort of things. Um, picking up uh, consecration to Our Lady, my wife and I do the 33-day St. Louis de Montfort um, consecration every year. And December 8th is our kind of family feast day. Um, it's inscribed within both of our wedding bands. And it's something that we, you know, have united uh, to, to each other. A uh, final thing is, is I, I'm also um, a proponent of spiritual directors and allowing your wife to have a spiritual director, right? Different than your spiritual director. Maybe it's the same. Um, maybe it's different. And sometimes the way a spiritual director brings things to light is uh, something that you're just not able to do for various reasons within a relationship. So those are other ways that I really encourage. um, Let your wife go on retreats and things like that. Um, These are things personally where I know when my wife goes on, like a female um, Catholic, you know, retreat for even just a day. She comes back full of life. She's let me do the same thing. I got to go to Father Jacques Philippe, I remember one year, and I was just like, oh my gosh, this, you know, this this spiritual giant, he's, he's got so much wisdom. And and those things are important, but then you're always bringing them together in that, that one union that we have in the sacrament of marriage. Yeah. I really want to emphasize something you said about respecting your wife's journey so much there like it's so important early on I was like a zealous convert Mm. and my wife was she was much more reluctant to investigate Catholicism she eventually did and she did embrace it 
But I was not respectful of just her pace, her journey, her spiritual history, things like that. And I pushed too hard. I was insensitive. I was so caught up in my own zeal to be like the most amazing Catholic ever that I just, I really hurt her in some ways, Mm. I think. And and maybe um, wasn't sensitive enough to her, her journey. And I also say too, uh, wives are busy. They're taking care of kids. They're doing dishes. They're doing laundry. Like I may have time, and I do, to you know read a spiritual book or read the lives of the saints. And there's been times when I've like pushed a little too hard, and my wife like, "Hey, honey, here's a book." Hint, hint. And like she doesn't have time to read a you know big long spiritual book. And I'm trying to push her in that direction, but she's like, "Look, I have to find." you know, my spirituality in my daily tasks. And like, so be respectful of your wife in all those dimensions, her spiritual development, where she is in that journey, like her spiritual practices, like give her space to be herself and uh, to to do the things that are meaningful to her and that may, may, not, may not be the same things that you do. So. Amen. Yeah, right. agreed. All right. So the next question Seems simple enough. It says, during baptism, isn't the Holy Spirit present along with the person administering the sacrament? I think that's an easy answer. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the Holy Spirit better be there. Yeah. The Holy Spirit is the life force that the, um, oh, I was reading Benedict the Sixteenth. How we could go. Wars, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> the Jedi mind tricks. Yeah. yeah. Listen to the episode on Father Innocent. We go down into that. Um, the... Uh, it's it's the life the 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 vital principle that guides and activates the grace in our lives, including the grace of of baptism. So. Yeah, and in every sacrament, we invoke the Holy Spirit to affect right. um, the the transformation. Awesome. Yeah. So this one's a great one because. Um, not only uh, we've thought about this, but Sam has experienced this. So the question comes from Jason, and it is, what are the most affordable or well-reviewed options for purchasing a dumb phone that puts boundaries on high schoolers while still allowing them to talk and text, but not giving them free reign over the internet? It commented on our episodes um, um, previously. So Sam, why don't you start by explaining what a dumb phone is and then talk briefly about <laughs> some of these um, options. A dumb phone is just a really limited phone. I mean, it, there's degrees. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the most basic phone would be one that just calls and maybe text messages. There's others now that have other features. Maybe that has a calendar or a note, notepad or um, things like that. Um, as far as options, there's there's a couple big ones in the U.S. One would be like the Light Phone or the Wise Phone, or those are two big ones. Um, they all have their advantages or disadvantages. Um, I will say the Wise Phone. Uh, you know, Matt Frads pushed that yeah. one a lot. I have one. I used it for a while. Um, I've switched to something else now, but um, that one is a great option for families because it has. Um, like a family portal that you can log mm. into um, where you can kind of manage your family and like see like see the text messages your kids are sending, kind of monitor that. There's some other good family-oriented features with the Wise Phone. So the Wise Phone is a good option. The only disadvantage there is it doesn't have any like service built into it. Yeah, There's no, uh, you have to like go find your own carrier and some carriers don't always play nice with the Wise Phone. So you've just got to kind of, experiment with that but it is a great option for families um, another option would be the light phone that is one that is um, kind of got the cool factor for yeah. teenagers who may want something that's a little um, more aesthetically pleasing um, but it also has very limited features it doesn't have a, a web browser or anything like that um, it doesn't have um, um, any kind of internet access so um, there's no way you can download any apps. There's no loopholes like that. It's very stripped down. But it does do calls and text messages very well and has some basic features. Um, and then a third option would be like 
Gab Wireless, which is interesting. It's basically an Android phone. It's very locked down, very stripped down. It's got it's got some of the nicer apps like um, you know a nice calendar app or a nice mm. notepad app. It's got texting, calling, but again, very locked down, very limited. No access to the internet, no access to an app store, or anything like that. Um, and it's it's got like a parent portal where you can control a lot of those features. So look up Gab Wireless, but it's actually a uh, cell phone provider too. Mm. So you can buy inter- or cell phone plans from them. Um, but it's much more smartphone like than the Light Phone or um, the Wise okay. Phone. So that's a, that's another good option for families. And then the third or the fourth and final option would be. Um, just getting them a regular dumb phone, which I don't, I mean, smartphone, which I don't really recommend, but there are some great tools like Bark, mm. um, which is like an app that you can install where you can control absolutely everything that they have access to. And you can see their text messages and like photos that they're taking. Like you can basically spy on anything that yeah, they do. Yeah. So that is an option, but I do think a dumber phone is better for teenagers. Um, less loopholes, less you know, back doors, things like that. So Wise Phone, Light Phone, and Gab Wireless are some good options. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that, Sam. And we can talk more about that on another episode, I'm sure. So, mm-hmm. All right, another question from John. What practices can you suggest for young men who want to prepare for marriage in relationship? Um, and he mentioned several practices that he's already doing, but he just wants to make sure that he's preparing in the best way possible. So Yeah, great question. So I guess a lot's going to have to do with where you are in your relationship, right? Um, I I can say that if you're just starting to date, right, you gotta get to know her. You've got to make sure that you're, you know, on the same, you know, understanding of the church and um, you know, orthodox teachings and, you know, you guys are in agreement with with what the church teaches on all things. If you've moved past that um, and you are in a courtship, right, to get married, um, that's the plan. The first thing I'm going to say is what to avoid. Avoid passionate kissing. I can't say that enough. I can't stress that enough. Avoid passionate kissing. If the ultimate end is not the conjugal act, you need to avoid doing it. And um, and if it's anything that leads you to that ultimate end, you need to avoid doing it. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna state that um, right out of the bat. It's where my mind went. So hopefully the Holy Spirit's guiding me. But the other thing uh, is is yeah, uh, be involved together with um, you know podcast. It, uh, not ours, but you know maybe ours. But um, <laughs> but listen to things together. Listen to uh, great spiritual uh, masters, Fulton Sheen. You know these sort of things. Do that together. Read books together. Together, right? That's another great one. Uh, I, I used to, I greatly enjoyed when my when my wife and I went through a couple, um, you know, spiritual masterpieces uh, of the past together, and and we just did little bit by little bit, and we talked about it. I remember um, also reading through some Dietrich von Hildebrand and things like that uh, with my wife, and and these things were were really great in preparing us for marriage. Uh, final thing I'm going to say is look, look for those, uh, questions that I I know you talked about, I think, um, yeah, just preparing for marriage, actually talk about things like family holidays, what you, what you, and how you envision your, your family life being together. Mm -hmm. Um, I, family holidays, budget, like these sort of things so often don't come up. And then you get married and you're you're shocked to realize that your you know spouse has five credit cards um, and doesn't yes. really know how to manage a uh, budget. You're shocked to realize some of the holiday traditions that your wife had that she wants to maintain. So discuss these things together. Work through some of these things together. There's never a bad time to start that conversation um, in my mind. Yeah, I would second the financial management piece. I mentioned this in previous episodes, but I wasn't very good at that when we first got married and like made some dumb decisions and stuff like that. So get your house in order with those practical details. I I think that's great advice. Um, Another thing, too, is if you're working on yourself, like let's say I want to be the best man I can be, 
um, for uh, my wife. When we get married, I just want to be like, I want to be that Catholic yeah. gentleman for her. Mm-hmm. Learn how to sacrifice. Like, learn how to deny yourself. I don't know if that means, like, do Exodus 90 or, like, do some spiritual ascetical practice, start fasting or do something like that. But just learn how to deny yourself, learn how to say no. Marriage is filled with sacrifice. I mean, those kids come along, I mean, you're going to be up late at night, you're going to be changing dirty diapers, you're going to be cleaning up, you know, vomit. Like, you're going to be doing all kinds of things you never imagined you'd be doing. And, like, you just got to learn to say no to yourself. You got to say no to your time. You got to say, be willing to sacrifice and give attention, listen to your wife, talk to her. All these things that, you know, as a bachelor, you don't, you don't think about. You just, you're kind of your own person. You do what you want, when you want. Uh, you spend your money how you want. But all of a sudden, when you're married, all that's shared. Yeah. So prepare yourself for that. And, you know, learn to deny yourself, learn to say no. And then the last thing I would say, too, is... Um, be will, be prepared to fail. Yeah. <laughs> when I was a young man um, preparing for marriage, I basically did what I just said. I was like, I'm going to be the best husband in the world. I got all the marriage books. I listened to all the marriage talks. Yeah. And I basically said, I've got it made. I'm going to be the best husband ever. And then like a week into our marriage, I had like blown everything up yeah. through my selfishness, through my insensitivity. So realize you're going to fail, extend some grace to yourself, but also be willing to apologize. Mm. That's like one of the most powerful things you can do in your marriage is say, I was wrong, or I messed up, or let me make this right. Like, because we're all going to fail at some one point or another. So get used to just admitting when you're wrong. I mean, you don't have to lie. You don't have to say you were wrong when you weren't or whatever. But being willing to... to be honest and say, I screwed up. I'm sorry. Make it right. Because forgiveness and apologizing are like some of the two key attributes to a healthy marriage. So learn how to do it early and often. Yeah, I love it. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I guess one other thing while we were talking, you know, I brought up the Holy Spirit, but trust in the Holy Spirit, trust in his grace that, I mean, it actually sounds like you're on the right path, right? You're, you're, yes, you know, yeah, you're discerning absolutely. these things. You're asking these questions. That's a huge step, right? That's a huge response, um, to grace. And so, uh, we are dependent on God's grace and, and just learning to listen to that and learning to work on yourself and everything in these manners. I love your thought on yeah, fasting for your future spouse, right? It's great intention. Yeah. So, yeah. um, awesome. Okay, so this um, question I think is really great for you, Sam, uh, for many reasons, but Nick asks us, how do ex-addicts overcome the shame of having been addicted to pornography? Um, are you saying it's a great question because I've been an addict? <laughs> or, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. No, uh, no uh, I have struggled with pornography right? so previously in my life. Yep. And it's, it is something that, oh my word, you feel like the, the, the greatest failure on earth. Like you yeah. feel like a wretch, you know, like how could God ever love me, you know, when I've, when I've done this or looked at these things or fallen into these habits and, and it doesn't have to be just pornography. It can be any addiction, you know, alcohol or yeah. um, gambling or any of those things that men are susceptible to. Um, but addiction is a shameful thing in our culture. And, it, like, we carry that burden even after we're whole. Yeah. You know, oh, this was in my past. And first thing I would say is just carry this, sh- like, be willing to, like, not fight the shame, but just say, like, embrace it in the sense of, I'm going to let this deepen my humility. I I know what I am. Maybe no one else knows that I've struggled with this in my past, but I know how weak I am. I know what I've done. And I'm going to allow that to deepen my humility and turn me back towards confidence in Christ and Christ alone. Um, you know, there's one saying who said, you know, bear a little shame. Like he basically said, carry it. Yeah. You know, um, it, it's something that, is a cross that we have to to bear at times as fallen creatures. Now, you don't want to be so consumed with your shame that it drives you from God or leads to some sort of guilt complex um, because it can become 
all-consuming. Well, that's kind of like an inverted pride in a sense where you're so obsessed with yourself and your, in your past and your failures that it drives you away from God. That's the wrong kind of shame. That's the debilitating, unhealthy, toxic shame. Yeah. What we're talking about here is just an awareness of your limits, an awareness of your creatureliness, an awareness of your fallenness. Yeah. That's kind of a healthy shame yeah. where you know what you are. You know, like St. Paul, again, I, I've kind of invoked him a lot, but he kind of talks about this frequently. You know, he talks about his weaknesses. He's like, I'll boast in my weakness. Right. Like, I, look, I've got all kinds of flaws. I'm, I'm awkward when I speak. I, I look at the ground. I've got these health problems. And he goes through this litany of, of and he's like, I'm going to boast in this rather than my accomplishments because then I know, you know, as Jesus told him, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So allow that to drive you back to Christ, and and but don't let it debilitate you because that's kind of pride. It's kind of self-absorption. Um, but as far as uh, moving beyond that, learn to forgive yourself. God has forgiven you. You've gone to confession. You're living a new life. You're, you're not falling back into those habits. Give thanks for that. And... Let it go. Give it back to God. Um, and if it's becoming too heavy for you to bear, just say, God, I know you've forgiven me. I'm, I'm choosing to forgive myself for the wrongs that I've done. I think that's an important part of you know confession and absolution that we don't talk about a lot. Yeah. God has forgiven you. And if you continue to hold on to that to the point where you are not letting it go, then you're really denying God's forgiveness of you. Yeah. So be free of that. God yeah. Amen. So very well stated, Sam. And I would just say that, yeah, that opportunity to unite your suffering, you know, uh, uh, to, to God with a prayer can go a long way. That was something that was very helpful for me. Um, likewise, I, I, I've struggled in my past um, with this, to, you know, with this sin. And one of the things, and even till this day, right? And I mean, we're talking, it's been, it's been more years than I can, can count since I, I've, I've struggled with this by God's grace. That being said, it still comes in my mind on, you know, yeah. Satan is still there just to, just to you know, uh, interject those, those thoughts. And immediately I turn, you know, to prayer, precious blood of Jesus, wash over me. I might bind spirits. But then I have a prayer of acceptance and forgiveness, kind of what you were talking about, yeah. and just offering it to God. And it can be just a one-liner prayer. It's like, Lord, I'm still struggling with this. I know you've forgiven me. I know that you love me. Help me through this struggle. Help me through the suffering. I give this back to you. And that can go a long way, even if you have to do that 100 times a day. And if it's 10 years down the road since you have um, had you know, any um, exposure to pornography, but you still have to return to that prayer, it can go a long way and it can be that constant reuniting yourself to the love of Christ. And one more thing I want to add, you know, Christ bore shame as well. Mm. The cross in the, um, you know, 2000 years later, like we wear crosses around our neck or like, you know, think that it's like a decoration in our house or something. No, like the cross was the most shameful form of execution. And often the victims nailed to a cross would be completely naked, like no loincloth, nothing, just exposed to the world to be mocked, laughed at, spit at, you know, just completely humiliated. That was Christ. He bore our shame um, on the cross, you know, and scripture says that he became sin for us. Mm. He was perfectly innocent. He never sinned in his life, and yet he bore the ultimate humiliation for us, the most shameful execution possible for us. So know that Christ is carrying that shame with you. Um, He's carrying that burden of sin with you, um, and he's taking it upon himself, and that's what our redemption is. So no matter how wretched you may feel, Christ has felt just as wretched, if not a million times more so. Yeah. Amen. 
Well, we had a lot of great questions, and unfortunately, we didn't get to answer them all. But it has come that time in this episode, unless Sam and I just talked for another two hours. Um, <laughs> so, so we're grateful for you listening, but I think it's time for, for our nightcap. Yes, absolutely. So we mentioned the rosary a couple of times. I mean, yeah. I think we mentioned it like every single episode. Absolutely. But uh, every man should have a beautiful, well-constructed Catholic rosary, not the kind that's going to like break in your pocket um, or one of these like flimsy plastic ones. We're talking like a real rosary, and there's no better example than the Catholic gentleman rosary which we have, and uh, we will put this in the show notes as well. Yeah. But this is a beautiful custom-designed rosary that you work, put a lot of love into and a lot of work into um, in partnership with the Catholic Woodworker. So I, I did, yeah. No, I appreciate you mentioning that. So it is a manly rosary. Um, it was a year in the making, and uh, we went through multiple different um, artistic, uh, actually many beautiful artistic renditions of, of St. Joseph, the worker, until we, we landed on one that just really captivates uh, his authentic masculinity um, for us. And then actually it was Sam who had the inspiration for the back, which... Um, I was so grateful for, again, right at the beginning, and then we finally got to work through it, but that was the three holy hearts images. So we have got the sacred heart, um, the uh, immaculate heart, and the most chaste heart. So sacred heart of Jesus, immaculate heart of Mary, and most chaste heart of St. Joseph on there. And it's a beautiful old devotion in the church. And um, But everything from the beads chosen to uh, the paracord to the pardon crucifix on it, um, all very intentional, all beautifully made and handcrafted, handmade um, here in America. And um, and yeah, we're very blessed to, to provide this and to pray with it and to hopefully bring um, more souls to Christ. So. Yeah, you go repelling with this thing. You so don't try. <laughs> Grab two of them and uh, <laughs> no, and but uh, uh, yes, definitely have a have a well constructed rosary, even if it's not ours. Amen. Thanks for joining us, and as we end all our episodes, be a man, be a saint.